In 2009, Connie Converse found the most success of her musical career. It came 50 years after she made the music and 30 years after she disappeared without a trace. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to day 10 of the 12 Days of Crime Lines. This case suggestion was sent over to me from Mark, so thank you for it. It seemed like the perfect fit for a 12 Days episode. We are nearly done, but if you have not gotten enough getting 12 days of daily episodes, there are always more episodes over on Patreon and through Apple subscriptions. But let's go ahead and get into this case. It starts with Elizabeth Converse, who was born in New Hampshire in 1924. She wouldn't adopt the nickname Connie until she was an adult, but since that's what she's best known as, I'm going to use it throughout for the sake of clarity. Connie grew up with a brother a few years older than her and another a few years younger. Their parents were strict Baptists and their father, Ernest, was a minister. He left the pulpit in order to be the director of New Hampshire's chapter of the American Council on Addiction and Alcohol Problems, a.k.a. the Anti-Saloon League. He was fighting the good fight against the repeal of Prohibition. Even when that fight was over and alcohol was again legal, the group became the New Hampshire Christian Civic League, and he stayed on for many more years. Connie was an intelligent child, with her younger brother calling her a genius and polymath, as she took two new subjects easily. And the evidence backs up his claims. In the seventh grade, a poem she wrote was published in the local paper. In high school, she made a statue that was put on display at the library. And when she graduated high school, she was valedictorian, won eight out of the 12 achievement awards granted to her graduating class, and got a full ride four-year scholarship to Mount Holyoke College. Mount Holyoke was an all-female college that both Connie's mother and grandmother had attended, so the family was incredibly happy that she was following in their footsteps. They weren't so happy when Connie abruptly dropped out of school after two years and moved to New York City. Connie wanted to pursue music, which was a surprise to her family since she didn't seem too keenly interested in music prior to this. She took violin lessons as a child, but that was about it. However, she had started learning guitar and writing her own lyrics, and she was ready to see what New York had to offer her. When Connie moved to New York in the mid-1940s, she was on the leading edge of what we now know as the singer-songwriter genre. She moved into an apartment in Greenwich Village and took a day job at the Institute for Pacific Studies, writing essays about international U.S. relations in the Pacific. She soon took an easier job at a printing house that would leave her with more free time to paint, write poetry, which would soon become song lyrics, practice her guitar, and compose music. She recorded herself on a reel-to-reel recorder in her apartment. Connie's lyrics were often about serious issues, but she used the simple sound of folk music blended with hints of blues and jazz. She would send the recording she made to her younger brother, Phil, who was a political scientist, 
living with his wife in Michigan. Phil and his wife were very supportive, but there were two people in Connie's life who she didn't send her music to and who were not supportive, and that would be her parents. Connie had broken out of her sheltered upbringing, and they did not approve of her lifestyle in New York, which included smoking and drinking and going to parties. It said her father, who died in 1965, never listened to a single one of her songs. In 1954, Connie went with a friend to a party hosted by Gene Deitch, who you may know as a famed illustrator and animator. But he also would regularly host these parties in his apartment where he would record musical guests and would try to use his influence to help them find an audience. Connie showed up to this party with her guitar and she walked in looking like a meek librarian or maybe an out-of-place farmhand. Connie seemed so shy to play that Jean almost wrote her off, but he set up his recording system for her and Connie blew everyone away with her unique style. It was a sound few others were playing at the time. It's not clear how, but it is assumed it was through Jean or someone at the party that Connie got invited to perform on CBS's morning show hosted by Walter Cronkite. This may sound a little more impressive than it was because we have to transport ourselves back to the mid-1950s, and Walter Cronkite was still on the rise. This show was pretty short-lived. Cronkite would interview guests and talk to a lion puppet about the news. But even if the show wasn't a smash hit, it was a chance for Connie, who appeared nervous, to present her music to the country. Unfortunately, this was not the big break she hoped for. Connie then pivoted, moving out to Harlem and working on composing her music on the piano. While her music improved, she still couldn't find an audience after 16 years in New York City. Dejected, 36-year-old Connie Converse left New York in January 1961, moving to Ann Arbor, Michigan, near her brother and sister-in-law. And other than occasionally teaching her nephew piano, Connie largely stopped playing music. She instead threw herself into academic work, political activism, and writing. But Connie Converse was struggling with depression. Her job was demanding, but routine. Her family was unaware of any serious romantic interests, and her brother said looking back, he didn't even know if she was gay or straight. That's how little romance seemed to be part of her life, as far as they could tell. Though friends from New York attempted to keep in touch by sending letters, Connie rarely, if ever, wrote back. And in this time frame, after moving to Michigan, her drinking increased. Seeing that Connie was overworked and struggling, her co-workers funded a sabbatical for her. Connie lived in London for eight months, and while her depression wasn't cured, she did enjoy the time and the variation from her usual day-to-day. A few months after she returned to the U.S., Connie's mother Evelyn was hoping to re-spark whatever it was Connie found in London, by taking her on another trip. 
Evelyn and a friend were going to Alaska and asked Connie to come along. Connie didn't want to go. A trip with two conservative elderly teetotalers really didn't appeal to her, particularly since she appeared to be dependent on alcohol at this point. But she also didn't know how to turn her mother down, so she went. Connie did not enjoy her time in Alaska at all, but her mother did. They had hardly arrived home before Evelyn suggested that they go on another big trip together, this time just the two of them. Connie, again, didn't know how to say no. And at some point in all of this, with the depression, the sabbatical, the drinking, the doomed trip to Alaska, the possible repeat of that doomed trip, Connie's doctor told her, that she had to have a hysterectomy, which was a surgery she did not want. So Connie decided she was done with life in Michigan. On August 3rd, 1974, Connie turned 50. And within a week, she packed up her car with her belongings and drove off, leaving behind around 20 letters for family and friends talking about her depression and her feelings of detachment. In these letters, Connie was saying goodbye and explained that she was heading out to start over elsewhere. Some people took the notes at face value. Connie was leaving, but surely she'd eventually contact someone and let them know where she settled. But her brother Phil, arguably the person closest to her and the one who knew her the best, believed that the story of a new life was a pretense and that Connie intended to take her own life. The letters and the packing up her belongings were just a little bit of theater to keep her family from being upset or worrying too much. Phil waited to get a call, maybe one that said Connie's car had been found abandoned or her body had been found, but that call never came. Connie and her car and all of her belongings seemingly vanished. A few years after Connie had left, Phil heard from someone that there was an Elizabeth Converse listed in a phone book in Kansas City or possibly Oklahoma City. Phil, thinking back on it years later, couldn't remember which city it was, but he said he never followed up on it. If his sister was alive out there somewhere, She had cut off contact willingly. It was her choice to go, and he wasn't going to just show up at her door. Searches of documents in the intervening years have not uncovered any Elizabeth Converse who could be her. Her surviving family, which at this point in time would just be her nephews, believed she had likely driven her car into a lake to hide any trace of herself. She really wanted to spare the family the pain of her suicide. They don't believe that Connie would have gone decades without any contact with her family. Even if Connie survived beyond her disappearance, she is a likely deceased today as she would be 98 years old. It's possible she died under an assumed name or as a Jane Doe somewhere along the way. She was not entered into NamUs until 2014, 40 years after her disappearance. 
And the story of Connie Converse was nearly forgotten by everyone except those closest to her. That was until 2003 when David Garland from WNYC's Spinning the Air radio show introduced her to modern audiences. Gene Deitch was slated as a guest on the show, and ahead of his appearance, he sent over a CD of music he wanted to share. David listened to it thinking, okay, cool, and then One by One by Connie Converse played. It immediately caught his attention because it wasn't quite like anything he had heard before. It would fit in well with the rise of the singer-songwriter generation, but it was ahead of its time as Connie was in New York making this music in the late 40s and early 50s. In 2009, Gene's recordings of Connie's music were released as an album called How Sad, How Lonely. In 2014, her piano music was released under the title Connie's Piano Songs, and then in 2020, six more songs were released as the album Sad Lady. Connie has since been the subject of documentaries, a feature in The New Yorker, and additional episodes of Spinning the Air, which you can listen to as a podcast. Connie didn't find an audience in her lifetime, but she has found one now through the power of the internet. You can stream her music on music platforms like Amazon and Spotify. But the question of what happened to Elizabeth Connie Converse is still unanswered. At the time she went missing, Connie was 50 years old. She was between 5'7 and 5'10, and she weighed about 150 pounds. She had brown hair, brown eyes, and wore glasses. While this is not an active investigation, you can send in any tips to NamUs or call the Ann Arbor Police at 734-794-6920. These numbers will be in the show notes. 